the most recent missing and murdered women were just in the past two years. One woman had gone missing while picking mushrooms. She was an avid mushroomer here in the north. And she went out picking with her husband and, and went missing. And there were some curious circumstances around, you know, her being missing. And, and it was not typical of her. And just the policing resources, the search and rescue resources were inadequate. Our own community had sent a search party for this community member and, and never were able to, to recover her. Um, in the past year, another young woman uh, was discovered uh, murdered on the Hudson Bay Mountain. And again, no investigation and, and no answers for her family and the young infant daughter she left behind. You know, she was a, a granddaughter-in-law to um, one of our hereditary chiefs. So these kinds of losses impact the whole community. I'm Nisha Bastani. And I'm Muna Gassim. And this is Declarations. Today, the Unistotin Indigenous community and their fight against the Canadian government, the federal police, and the coastal gas link pipeline that threatens to invade their land. My name is Carla Tate. Um, I, I just want to honor those leaders and future leaders who are listening in. I belong to the Unistotin House Group, the Dark House group of the Gilsehu, or the Big Frog Clan of the Wet'suwet'en Nation. And I work with my family. I am a volunteer uh, director of clinical services at our Unistatin Healing Center and one of the appointed spokespeople for my house. Dr. Carla Tate is Unistatin. Unistatin is one of the house groups of the Wet'suwet'en Nation whose unceded territory lies in the Canadian province of British Columbia. Their unceded territory is just 66 kilometers, or 40 miles, from Highway 16, known as the Highway of Tears. Uh, so Highway 16 is named the Highway of Tears because of the volume of First Nations or Indigenous women and girls, um, and even men, I think, that have gone missing along that particular stretch of highway. Houston is where that highway runs through. It runs through uh, our home community of Whitsett as well. I'm aware of at least seven women or girls in my lifetime that have gone missing and were, were discovered murdered, all of which don't have you know, their families don't have any answers about who committed those crimes or who was, you know, abducting or or murdering their loved ones. And there hasn't been any kind of adequate police response or investigation to resolve these cases. <laughs> but as Dr. Tate explains, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or the RCMP, haven't simply neglected the Wet'suwet'en Nation and other Indigenous peoples. They're an active part of the continuing colonial violence against Indigenous people. It's been our experience in this past year of ongoing surveillance and harassment with the presence of, of those forces on our territory and their unequal 
support and interests in safety for our, our members and our guests compared with CGL's corporate interests has just made very patently clear the fact that um, the RCMP isn't there for our protection. We won't receive the same kind of consideration and, and support or safety through their presence that CGL workers receive. CGL, the Coastal Gas Link, is a planned pipeline being developed by the corporation TC Energy. The pipeline would cut through Wet'suwet'en land and bring hundreds of transient energy workers, establishing so-called man camps that land defenders have argued for years increases violence against Indigenous women. And so usually we're experiencing intimidation or threat at the hands of the police rather than safety or protection. And I know I speak for myself when I say I, I, in this past year, I felt a lot more vulnerable and unsafe traveling the 66 kilometers up the road to our very remote territory with my young five-year-old daughter. Um, if I'm traveling by myself, knowing that there are police on that route that could stop me at any point and abuse their power and have, you know, my word against theirs in terms of how those interactions go. And this land, where they face surveillance and militarized policing, is their land. In 1997, the Supreme Court of Canada recognized the Wet'suwet'en Nation's legal jurisdiction over their territory, meaning the right to its, quote, exclusive use and occupation, unquote. But since then, the Canadian government and the federal police have acted as if their own Supreme Court decision didn't happen. So there's been a lot of demonstrated inequities in terms of application of the law and, and in terms of the, the protective function that the RCMP should have for all civilians in Canada and um, the way that we've experienced their presence and, and their treatment of us as Indigenous people. It's, it's very, very distressing that our healing centre at this very remote location in the wilderness, in the heart of our territory, with 450 transient industrial workers who come freely and go freely from our territory without any kind of police checks, um, without any kind of accountability, or without any connection to the land or the people in the area, and what their conduct and interactions might look like with our own house members, our own Indigenous women, and even the vulnerable populations that we seek to work with at our healing centre, a mere 12 kilometres away from that man camp site, under the watchful eye and under, like, facilitated by the RCMP, who have already demonstrated to us in this past year that they're not willing to take any any complaints or concerns from us or any reports about unsafe or threatening behaviour by CGL and its contractors seriously. They've been dismissed or denied or um, we've been told we need to have video footage before anything will go anywhere and haven't heard back about any kind of investigation when we've uh, made reports about unsafe conduct on the roads or towards some of our, our healing centre staff or volunteers. 
and we see prompt immediate response when CGL makes any kind of complaint about impediment to their their work or their access, even if they're spurious complaints. This disparity in the enforcement of Canadian law is as old as Canada itself. So in 2010, Dr. Tate's house group, the Unistaden, began to build. They constructed a cabin in the exact location where three companies proposed to put a pipeline corridor. And Dr. Tate established the Healing Center, where she's now the Director of Clinical Services to help Indigenous patients cope with colonial trauma. That trauma is ongoing. Dozens of red dresses hang throughout the Innistaden camp, representing thousands of missing and murdered Indigenous women. It was here, in February of this year, with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, where a helicopter dropped in into their land and Dr. Tate was arrested. Can you give us a short summary of the events that have taken place in the recent couple of months? So it was a very drawn out process leading up to those arrests and, and a very difficult ordeal and experience to, to go through being violently and forcefully removed from your traditional territory. Our chiefs had decided to, under duress, allow the company to come into our our dark house territory and begin their pre-construction work as we awaited what we hoped would be a just outcome for the injunction, the interlocutory injunction decision that would um, allow the company under that same uh, authority of the, the BC Supreme Court to begin construction activities. This most recent confrontation, so we've been one year under police surveillance. There's been an RCMP temporary detachment established on Den territory at the 29 kilometer mark on the Morris Forest Service Road leading up to both of our, our camps, the Den and the Unistaten camps. And what had happened this year is, is Justice Madam Church had made her ruling on the interlocutory or the permanent injunction on December 31st, to which the police could then, at their discretion, uh, decide to enforce. And basically, the injunction established that anyone attempting to block the roadways leading to active CGL work sites on our unceded territory or anyone interfering with the work undertaken by CGL and its contractors at active work sites would be breaching that injunction and subject to arrests. In response, our our hereditary chiefs were, of course, dismayed by the ruling, dismayed by the fact that so much of the affidavits and the material submitted for that decision ruling, including our own Wet'suwet'en law, which the Delgamuk Supreme Court of Canada decision had outlined, there was a responsibility of the federal and provincial governments to work with us to integrate and consider Wet'suwet'en law, which precedes Canada's. It was completely dismissed in this ruling and not given the weight it should have been. So our hereditary chief subsequently decided to enact Wet'suwet'en law and evict CGL as trespassers on January 4th, I believe, at which point my mother, who is a, a female hereditary chief, 
with the name Galtai in our feast hall. And I decided to join my Aunt Frida to return to our, our Unistaten village, formulate our plans for our healing center programming, and also be a presence alongside her to uphold that eviction issued by our hereditary chiefs. And so after 30 plus days of occupying our territories and upholding the eviction, the RCMP, after a number of, of different lawless activities, including the establishment of a, an exclusionary zone on our territory and, and some uh, overbroad application of that injunction, um, had decided to move onto the different encampments along the road the first of which that they made arrests in the cover of night being the observation camp at the 39 kilometer mark to which they removed and arrested a number of uh, legal observers and other supporters who had stationed themselves at this, this watch camp to receive and hold supplies for both locations, uh, Gidam Dan and Unistaten and observe the activities of the, the RCMP to ensure those were recorded and issued forward in the form of the complaints process available to us. So that was the first uh, series of events that violently took place by militarized police coming in and disturbing people in their sleep who were not in any way violating the injunction and made a number of arrests there. There were subsequent arrests made um, of guests that had set up, um, you know, the police at their discretion were deciding at which point they would turn people back from advancing toward the camps. So a number of our community members and supporters had gone to, to light a, f a sacred fire and, and sent prayers up to our camps as the police began moving it and had parked their vehicles at various points along that roadway. I believe uh, uh, at that point a few other individuals were arrested, or at least their vehicles were towed from the by the CGL company, um, leading them to to sort out how they would return back to their homes. And they had advanced onto the the Gidim Den 44 checkpoint to again with militarized police force, helicopters, canine units, sniper rifles pointed at our our friends. Um, had taken and arrested four land defenders, indigenous land defenders, and, and the daughter of Chief Was, who was there in her, her father's place as he was attending to a family death and um, expecting the arrival of his newest child. Three days later, on January 10th, the police forces had advanced to Unistaten again with uh, tactical units. The canine unit had dropped their, their forces behind our gate and advanced and surrounded us in the midst of uh, a ceremony and interrupted and arrested uh, myself along with two of our, our Zakhaize, our female chiefs and four Indigenous land defenders as we hosted a ceremony to honour and invite in the spirits of the missing murdered Indigenous women represented by the red dresses um, hung in their honour uh, along our, our roadway, along the bridge. 
to allow them to to be there in spirit as we were calling forth our our ancestors of our land and of the nations showing solidarity across Turtle Island and the the spirits of these women themselves who have not seen justice at the hands or at the behest of of our communities um, through the RCMP's efforts to remotely investigate their cases or to ensure um, that this epidemic of missing murdered women doesn't continue and in fact um, gets perpetuated by their efforts to protect industry when the the incidents of crime and violence and um, sexual uh, violence toward our women and children increases exponentially with the presence of these industrial man camps. So there's a 450 man camp proposed for just 12 kilometers up the road from our healing center on Unistaten territory. We felt very strongly about honoring the women whose families had sent these representative dresses and allowing them an opportunity to stand or be represented there with us in spirit. But the story of how the Unistaten camp came to be a place of active resistance to colonial invasion began long before this most recent confrontation. We have, as Wet'suwet'en people, as Unistatin, have experienced a long history of dispossession from our territory, of destruction of our infrastructure. I am aware of about five cabins in my family's pretty recent history that were burned or destroyed by federal or provincial bodies that were intent or industry um, intent to use our land for for their purposes. So these were different homesteads on our territory that our ancestors had lived in at various points in the the season to do different land-based activities that sustained our membership and allowed us to contribute through our our governance and social system, the bathlots or, or the potlatch system. And our economies are, are such that we gather resources from our territories. And as a house group, we, we host and we feed the witnessing other four clans to honor them for, for witnessing the work and the laws that are carried out through our feast hall. So Wet'suwet'en people have always lived on the full expanse of our unceded territories and the Dalgamuk decision uh, defined that as over 22,000 square kilometers that had never been ceded or surrendered um, to Canada or the, the province of BC. So we have a long history and a very close connection with the territory that we still govern today and is divided up amongst our hereditary chiefs who have the responsibility to steward over those territories, ensure that they're managed in such a way that they can continue to sustain their membership and future generations. So we've, we've had this, these kinds of confrontations um, since colonization. And in more recent times, about 10 years ago, Chevron and a few other um, projects were proposed and began to try to undertake um, surveying work and and, um, preparation work to 
begin um, this energy corridor through our territory. At which time, my aunt Frida Hewson, who's also one of our Zakhaize, she holds the the hereditary chief name Halifkat in our feast hall. Um, she, at the the time ten years ago, had decided, at the advice of my my grandfather, who was the late uh, Dan Michelle or Wigadam Shkol, he provided a lot of testimony in the Dalgamak court proceeding. Um, he advised her that in order for these governments to really respect and acknowledge that this is our territory, we would need to occupy our territories and act like we own them because we do. With his advice and, and recognizing the threats that were encroaching on our, our the last and this very sacred um, and delicate um, environmentally sensitive portion of our territory, the, the headwaters there at Talbitzkwa, where the Witsinkwa River begins and, and feeds downstream two of the major river systems that were responsible for the plentiful salmon run and the diverse and, and very um, developed uh, cultures of the Northwest Coast people downstream, including um, the Wet'suwet'en who had our we had our fishing village in what's now called Witset and historically was called Khayawiget. So Frida decided at that point to reoccupy. She hosted a number of um, action camps, which had the intent of educating and, and bringing together folks who had skills around organizing nonviolent actions to protect the land and to, you know, reconnect people with the land. So about five years after her, you know, reoccupation, after returning home to our, our Talbitzkwa territory, and I think three or four years after her and I had discussed this prospect of land-based healing um, by me pursuing uh, my PhD in clinical psychology and offering, you know, some supplementary support in, in the mental health and, and her acknowledging just how empowering it is for our people to return to these territories that are, that are clean and, and to be drinking fresh, clean, alive water and harvesting foods that are unpolluted uh, and untainted. Um, she noticed a lot of physical and even mental health benefits for herself and the, the various visitors to our territory. So we had this notion that we could establish a healing center on this territory. And about five years after she had lived there with the growing contacts and supports she, she'd garnered, they were be able to begin construction on um, the bunkhouse structure, which sleeps about 20 individuals. And just about a year and a half ago, had completed the three-phased um, healing center building, which can accommodate 16 beds, has a, an industrial kitchen, has um, recreational space and group programming space, as well as individual counseling rooms. So we've had various camps focused on different demographic groups and with different um, visions, but with the one consistent goal of reconnecting our, our people with the land that defines us. 
and empowering us in that way to revitalize some of these protective aspects that are culturally based to really combat some of these lasting impacts of historic and ongoing colonization. One of British Columbia's main arguments is that elected Wet'suwet'en band councils had signed benefits agreements, giving their free, prior and informed consent to the pipeline development. But those band councils did not have authority to make such decisions. To know why, it's critical to understand the Wet'suwet'en hereditary system of governance. Despite all efforts to um, erase and obliterate our, our culture and our governance system in efforts to dispossess us from our land, which has been the colonial agenda since Canada's confederation, we have managed to maintain our system of law, our Anak Nuatan, our Wet'suwet'en law, in which individual hereditary chiefs are passed on these, these names that have existed longer than anyone can remember. And these names are tied to certain tracts of territory, specific tracts of territory. So it's relevant in this case because the pipeline path, so the, the coastal gasoline pipeline route that's proposed cuts through um, unceded Wet'suwet'en territory. It, it cuts through territory that's um, governed by specific hereditary chiefs who have the authority as recognized in our Wet'suwet'en law and also through the Delgamuk decision and, and subsequent ones by the Supreme Court of Canada. And they have that authority to make decisions about their territories and, and they are the ones who must be consulted in and provide consent for any developments on their, their land. And the decision-making process in, in our Wet'suwet'en governance system is a collective one and one based on consensus. And the hereditary chiefs have the responsibility of speaking on behalf of the clan or the house group they, they represent and ensuring for the interests of the collective and the integrity of the land that's needed to sustain us and, and those future generations. So the reason that there's such um, challenge in the, the public and the media is in part because there is this imposition of Western values and, and Western law, this idea that majority um, should allow for you know, consent and, and this, this project to proceed without consensus, for example. And it's, it's confusing the matter because according to Anak Nuit N, and I think the closest thing I can draw similarities to is, is property law in, in the colonial law system, right? Like what is happening here is that these imposed governance systems, these Indian Act band councils and chiefs, which were created after the Indian Act and only have authority um, within reserve boundaries and function like municipalities, those groups have been consulted by this company to provide consent for development occurring on their neighbor's territory, right? And on the true authorities of those lands' territories. So the consent that was sought from 
the band councils and the chiefs um, of these elected uh, band councils within you know the various reserves adjacent to the pipeline has no authority and no weight to make the decisions about unceded traditional territory that's governed under our hereditary chief system and even some of the confusion in the media about certain hereditary chiefs endorsing the CGL project pipeline is irrelevant and um, intended to confuse the matters uh, because those hereditary chiefs either a don't actually have traditional territory that intersects with the pipeline route and or b having the title of a hereditary chief doesn't give you authority to speak to your neighbor's territory it's very clear in our Wet'suwet'en law that you cannot speak to other hereditary chiefs territory you can only speak to your own and you can only provide consent or permission for activities on your own territory and it was sought oftentimes under economic duress like i i know for a fact that our own chief and council that had signed the benefit agreement with Coastal Gaslink had done so only after the, the company had threatened that the project would proceed anyway. They were urged to sign to ensure that some, some kind of economic benefit could be received by WITSET because the project would go through regardless of whether they provided consent or not. Also, there's a, a silencing clause in those that, you know, councils, council members and um, the, the chief councillor cannot disclose the details of those benefit agreements to the public. Um, so there's a lot of secrecy involved there. And I also know the majority argument falls flat in, in our specific community as well because we had hosted, um, the community had been surveyed through a poll on support for the CGL project pipeline when it was proposed and the majority of community members did not want this pipeline project um, and in fact um, it had been um, declined on two occasions through two different surveys and was only approved at that final um, duress offer to our then chief counselor with with the threat that it would proceed anyway and you know then our community would have no economic benefit which of course you know most of our, our first nations communities within these reserve boundaries have very limited budgets we, we have no economic base because of the indian act that relegated us to very small often least desirable portions of our, our territory for some of our, our neighboring nations and it's it's understandable that there's a lot of economic pressures that make any kind of economic opportunities very hard to resist these recent events have taken place against a backdrop of reconciliation and a prime minister who has campaigned on it while the government has not made good on those commitments, a shift is taking place in local discourse. I would say that when, <laughs> when this party first came into leadership and the notion of reconciliation was put forward, it, it made me hopeful that perhaps there was an earnest commitment by the Canadian and 
and uh, provincial governments to finally set right, you know, their relationship with with the first people of this these lands. And the subsequent uh, tabling of that United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People and the passing within the BC legislature did give me some hope that, you know, at least in terms of what the, the verbal commitments are of these governments, we seem to be moving in a positive direction. I will say that leading up to January 10th, and the moments seeing that militarized force moving as it has for, you know, 150 years at our end of the, the Turtle Island continent, at least. I know it's been much longer for other Indigenous groups. It felt like a reliving of all that past uh, traumatic dispossession of our people from our lands, and it was heartbreaking, really. Part of our ceremony actually included a cremation bed. Um, that was the custom of our people when we laid the loved ones to rest, is to, to cremate. And so we actually held a cremation ceremony for reconciliation on that day and for three days um, leading up to the arrest. Because we recognize that it's not enough to share empty rhetoric, to share these commitments if you have no intention of acting on them and instead choose to maintain the status quo and violently, by force, dispossess our people from what's remaining of our traditional lands. While we are trying earnestly to heal from the impacts that our ancestors you know, have felt and while we are trying to self-determine our own future, our own economy, our own wellness by returning to some of the things that we were so violently separated from, you know, through Canadian law, we saw the Indian Act, which had the past system and relegated us to the confines of, of reserve boundaries. We saw um, the RCMP as the actors to forcibly remove our children from their parents and ban the speaking of our language and, and interrupt the transmission of our cultural ways and our teachings. We experienced the potlatch ban, which actually made it illegal for us to practice our governance system. Thankfully, our, our people have always pushed back against the oppression of these, these outside law systems because our Anakanuatan and our, our care for our land is much stronger. So we had underground potlatches. People were arrested for wearing their regalia or for hosting potlatches. And I remember a story about one of our elders who actually, after he was released from, from jail, he went back home and he continued his feast. So we have a long history of resistance. And if we didn't oppose these unjust laws, we wouldn't exist today as Wet'suwet'en people. Canada's projected image in the international community, both politically and culturally, is of a friendly, peaceful nation. The story we hear today is a jarring juxtaposition against that constructed narrative. 
it seems like that same agenda is, is just playing out today. So, you know, it, it was very hard for me to believe that this current government um, has any kind of integrity or any kind of intention to do their part and improve our future of cohabiting in, in Canada. Um, you know, I see a lot of young people, these flags, um, that reconciliation is dead. Those along with the, the blockades, the demonstrations are really attempts to hold Canada accountable. You know, we, we need to push back so these empty words can't be used as tools to justify continued violence against our people, as, you know, ways to soften the injustice that's occurring and the violence that's continuing to occur the way it has for the past 150 years. And if there is any hope of truly reconciling any relationships, it needs to be carried through to actions. It needs to be carried through um, respectful discussions and acknowledgement of the authorities of these lands. And I see, I actually see something like reconciliation happening between individual Canadians and our people. You know, the, the folks that are standing up at those demonstrations alongside our Indigenous brothers and sisters. So I actually see a lot more reconciliation in the people of Canada than I see in that elected governance structures and, you know, the the premier's actions or the the prime minister's actions because i do believe reconciliation at, at its heart needs to tackle very difficult complex situations that have dismissed and presupposed the importance of, of canada's systems over indigenous systems presuppose the authority of Canada over Indigenous people's authority to these lands. And, and it'll take some difficult work to integrate those two systems and to clearly create for a lot of communities, like outline that process of proper consultation and consent, where economic partnerships that are truly mutually beneficial could occur. Because it's not like we're fully opposed to any kind of development or any kind of initiatives on our territory. But those projects need to be consistent with our underlying values and they need to respect our laws. And I don't see any kind of protective factors right now within Canada's laws that are, are looking out for the environment and looking out for the future the way that Wet'suwet'en law does. So it's, it's a lot of work. They've had 20 years since Dalgamuk to do that important work, but it's been constantly deferred from government to government, from party leader to party leader. And we keep seeing these flashpoints in time when different Indigenous people push back and we reassert the authority of our laws and we reassert our title to these lands. We spoke to Dr. Tate on February 23rd just two weeks after her arrest. Here's what's happened since the recording. Police made further arrests of 10 Indigenous protesters at a solidarity blockade of the railways, led by Mohawks of Tiendinaga, near Belleville, Ontario. 
while demonstrations in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en Nation continued to spread across the country. Mohawks in Ganasatage shot down a highway northwest of Montreal. And in response, Vancouver's port was blocked. Vancouver police arrested six people. In Victoria, Indigenous youth and Wet'suwet'en locked themselves to the legislature, while 14 people were arrested at a protest in New Hazelton overnight for another rail blockade. On February 26, a press release from the office of the Wet'suwet'en indicated that hereditary chiefs had invited the federal and provincial governments to enter into talks. The governments declined. The Wet'suwet'en Nation's resistance to the violation of indigenous rights has expanded far beyond their territory. And the fight is still ongoing. At the end of the day, we always have a choice, right? We have, always have a choice to effect a future that we want, a future outcome, a future vision. As Unistaten, we're a relatively small house group, you know, I think a lot of the numbers of our population were very decimated after colonization. So our nation in total is is not a huge number. <laughs> and I know that, you know, mainstream media coverage of this situation tries to discredit our stance because of how small we are. But I would just say, you know, that didn't stop us. We know through our laws and through our teachings what's right here. And, and we have a lot of moral integrity and, and backing for the position we're taking, which has emboldened us to continue to stand our ground in the face of all kinds of violence and force, in the face of giants. What did you do when we got to these critical moments where human rights were at stake, where Aboriginal rights are at stake? where our planet's integrity to even support our own, our own children was at stake. And I know that our Unistaten members that are there defending the territory, who are there upholding our Inakhnuaten, and the hereditary chiefs who have authorized that and, and stand by that, can confidently say that we did everything and we are doing everything we can to change and dismantle the systems that seek to destroy us. And I would just ask that all of your listeners, all of the people across Turtle Island, across the world, continue to recognize their own power to affect change. So we've had amazing commitment by a number of uh, settler allies, a number of indigenous allies who have helped us realize this vision of self-determination on our territory for this healing center. And, you know, it is together that we're stronger and that we're able to make a better future. So that's what I take away from all of this, even though uh, Canada's government and all of the systems that have established its power since colonization and continue to protect its power with colonial means. 
can only continue to do so if if we all allow it to. We want to hear more from you, so please let us know what you thought about today's discussion or if there's something you'd like to know more about. You can send us an email at editor at declarationspod.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at declarationspod. You can also check out our website, declarationspod.com, where every episode has a companion piece with more information about each week's topics. These are written by our show notes writer, Katerina O'Mellon. Our media manager is Ms. Malik. Our sound editor is Helen Jennings. Matt Mahmoudi and Max Curtis are our producers. And Jin Min Tan is our executive producer. Tune in next time for more declarations. Mm-hmm.